Let's pray. Father in heaven, today we are reminded of your teaching that except we become as little children, we cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. And Lord, today we just want to pray that you will help us to be restored to the innocence, the honesty, the transparency, the trust of little children. Help us, I pray, as we open your word, that we might have our hearts moved by your spirit, that we might be better men, better women, better boys and girls for having been here today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 12. David had a lot to be thankful for. God had done great things through David. And David, in fact, a few weeks ago, we, had, we studied, didn't we, about David and Goliath. How God used David to demonstrate that he was still alive, that he was still on the throne. So David had much that he could look back on and see the, uh, the blessings of God in his life. And yet there, was, there were challenges. There were challenges. And I'm sorry, I, I meant to say uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12, we pick up the story here. David was once called a man after God's own heart. You remember that? He was a, a genuine, transparent, innocent, simple boy, man who trusted in God and obeyed his word. He was used by God to kill Goliath. And um, he was protected by God for years on the run from a jealous King Saul. Remember that? And one, uh, one, uh, in one way or another, God protected him. He was a brave man, a bold man. He had once had such respect for the, the Word of God and the will of God that even when given the opportunity to take the life of his aggressor, to take the life of Saul... He had simply, you remember, cut a corner off of his skirt and, and shown this to his king and said, you know, I, I could not lay my hand against the Lord's anointed. David's heart was so transparent. He was so, he was so open to using God's methods to solve God's problems. Amen? He wasn't going to take things into his own hands and use his own human resources, his own human methods. And so David was a great man, a great king, and a one who had been able almost single-handedly to establish the kingdom of Israel from, from uh, taking from what Saul had done, coalescing it into, into the, uh, the nation that it became, fortifying it and building the military and so forth. And yet we find in these chapters in 2 Samuel, we find that David fell to a sin, the sin of adultery. You know the story. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about uh, David and Bathsheba here this morning. It's not the main point. The main point is that David had been so blessed of God, so honored of God, one might ask the question, how could someone who had been so close to God, so connected with God, so in tune and, and open and transparent and willing to be used by God and, and, and willing to use God's methods to solve his problems, how had one like him come to the point? where he not only committed adultery, but when he couldn't cover it up in the way that he thought he wanted to cover it up, he also became what? He also became a murderer. David, King David, responsible for the life of one of his most faithful subjects. And as we look in the Bible here in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we see that the Lord sent Nathan to David. This is in verse 1. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he had brought, bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Verse 4. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and give his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Nathan paints this picture before King David. And King David's intellectual understanding of justice takes over here. And it says... 
David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Wow, what a story. And this story indicates that David not only had become an adulterer and a murderer, he had also become a hypocrite, hadn't he? He had also become one who could intellectually recognize the right from the wrong, but who was not living it in his own life. David had somehow began to trust perhaps in his past. He began to trust in his spirituality. I mean, he wrote beautiful music. He wrote songs. He led out in worship. He had done great things for God, great things for Israel. He began perhaps to trust in some of those things and to think in some way that they might compensate for those things which he was doing or which he was allowing in his own heart and life. You see, there's a tendency in our, in our, in our experience, I believe, as humans, to try to compartmentalize our lives. Are you with me? There are certain areas of our lives where we're willing to give God freedom to do His thing. And we've, we've sort of divided out the different parts of our being. And we think of ourselves, and we are, mental beings and spiritual beings and physical beings and emotional beings. But the problem is, sometimes we think that we can allow God to have access to some of those areas of our lives without having access to the rest of our lives. I think maybe this is what happened to David. David began to think, well, I'm okay in this area. It sort of compensates for the other areas. We might, we might think of the sort of like the, the Western, at least, idea of the yin-yang concept of being good and evil and, and trying to keep them balanced. And as long as you have more good than evil. Well, it doesn't work that way in the Christian experience. And I suppose even around those, those around David, there's those around David who also were not living according to the will of God and the word of God. There were challenges that those uh, around him faced as well. Do you really believe, do you really believe that nobody knew about the Bathsheba thing? Do you think David sent for her and nobody knew? Or do you think there were some people who knew, but they couldn't confront the king? They couldn't say anything to King David. King David is such an amazing person. King David is such a powerful man. They couldn't confront him. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And this is going to be, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is going to be what I, what I, hope, to, uh, I hope you remember when you leave today. We're going to try to explore some areas of our lives that may not be easy to put into words. But I hope that when the, when the, when the message today is finished, this concept will be in your mind very clearly. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23. When you're there, why don't you say amen? amen? All right. Verse 23 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you how? Completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and what does he say? And body be preserved how? blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow! You see, sometimes we think of ourselves as being spiritual, and God has to help us spiritually, right? And that's true. We think of ourselves as being spiritual beings, and God needs to help us with our sin problem, forgive us for our guilt, and those things which we define as sins or we know to be as sin. And we, uh, we say, okay, God's helping us spiritually. I'm, I'm, I'm gaining salvation. I'm going to be saved in God's kingdom. Amen? And that's a good thing. It's good when God brings us to an understanding of our spiritual need and our spiritual awareness. Now, we know as Bible-believing, uh, Bible-studying uh, Christians, we know that God also has a message for us physically, doesn't He? He says, Beloved, I, I wish above all things that you would prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. Amen? And so God, God wants us to prosper physically as well as spiritually. But notice with me, there are three elements here, and there's many ways of dividing, I guess, the, the human, human being up. But the, the passage here in, in 1 Thessalonians says, I pray that your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless. And I would propose to you today, that there's a third area of our lives that we often don't recognize that we need to give God access to. We need to give God permission to work in. 
And I'm proposing today, and the title of my message is, is, states that if we don't allow God to deal with us in this area of our lives, we are only two-thirds blessed. We don't have the complete blessing that God wants us to have. Is it better to be two-thirds blessed than one-third blessed? Yes. But is it better to be completely blessed than two-thirds blessed? That's what I want. And that's what Paul says God wants. He says, I pray God, the God of peace himself would sanctify you completely, your whole spirit, soul, and body, be preserved blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this third area that I'd like for us to talk about this morning is our emotional area. You see, God made us in his own image as a whole being. We cannot neglect any part of our constitution and be restored in his image. Now, when I, when I, as I was working trying to make some illustrations for this morning, I realized that even this illustration falls short of, of where we really should, or how we really could illustrate how God made us as a complete being. This is probably a little bit of a closer illustration, if you please, of how God made us. You can't really divide them. I kept trying to talk about emotional. I, you know, there's some parts of emotional that are spiritual, aren't there? There's some parts of, of, of physical that affect our emotions. It's very difficult to separate them. And yet, yet as Christians, in the Christian church at large, we have attempted, I think, in many ways, to separate these three and to be able to live in one or two or maybe two and a half of them without really allowing God to give us sanctification or growth in all three of the above. And so when, when God says here, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, I would propose to you this morning that it's God's will to have access to all parts of our lives. Too often in the church we neglect to talk about emotional health. We sort of tiptoe around each other for fear of offending one another. Ever felt that way? We excuse our own and others' insecurities or inappropriate ways of relating to one another on the basis of our obvious spirituality. So even though I may be rude, even though I may not treat my brother or my sister the way I should, because I do something else, it somehow offsets my responsibility. And don't talk to this person because they, all, they do do this, you see, even though they're also doing that. We decry gossip. Right? Amen? Anyone? <laughs> but we rarely, rarely do anything about it except gossip about it. Can you believe the way she talks or he talks? Right? We either confront inappropriately or we avoid confrontation at any expense. We try to pretend that the church and its members is a little utopia, a little heaven on earth, when in reality there are real problems. We're real people, aren't we? I know your pastor is. But the church is not here for a weekly fashion show. It's not here for a parade of perfection. That's not what God gave the church to do here on this earth. I believe that God gave us the church. God intends for us to enjoy the benefits of the church because we need the church. We need, I need the church. God did not make us as independent atoms. He did not make us as just little individuals to be saved or lost alone. No, God put us in community. God himself made us in his image, right? And God himself is not an individual who operates alone. There's a, there's a community even within the Godhead, isn't there? We're going to be exploring this a little more in a couple weeks when we talk about our, on our We Believe weekend. There's a community within the Godhead. And do you know that in the Godhead, there is a mutual submission within the Godhead of the Father submitting to the, uh, the uh, to allowing the, the Son to judge and the, father's, the, uh, the Son submitting to the Father's will and the Holy Spirit speaking whatever He is sent to speak. There's a mutual submission. And God made us in His image, which means we cannot fully be restored in His image by ourselves. We have been given families first of all that is our first the first way that god develops us in his image is our families in the home outside the home well by the way how many here came from a perfect home 
A good home, yes, but there is no perfect home in a fallen world, is there? And so even though we may have had good families, or maybe we didn't have good families, whatever the situation is, God hasn't given up on us just because we didn't grow up in an ideal home in the Garden of Eden. No, God puts us in another family, and that family is the church. And that church has the responsibility. You and I have a mutual obligation to one another to help each other grow spiritually, physically, emotionally. We have that responsibility. And to someone who says, well, I don't believe in organized religion, I, don't, I, I worship God on myself, I said, you don't understand what you're missing. God created the church as a, an environment where men and women could work off of their rough edges, where we could see our emotional needs and in a safe environment among people who love us, just like in our families, we could learn and grow and overcome and become the people that God wants us to be. God put us in families. Those families have their own idiosyncrasies and problems, giving us inherited traits of thinking and communicating and relating. And so He puts us in the church But if the church is going to do its task that God expects us to do, we're going to have to be honest. We're going to have to have transparency. We're going to have to confront areas of our lives we don't usually confront from from the pulpit, perhaps, or even think about as being spiritually inclined. We have to be honest. And it's supposed to be that way. Church is not supposed to be a pretend weekly spiritual Disney World-like magic show where we all come and we pretend everything's just fine. No, it's, it's meant to be a place where we can be safe, a place where we can grow. It's not supposed to be a place where we never lovingly confront one another for fear our own pet faults will be confronted. It's meant to be a place where we can really love one another so much that we, on our knees, remove the beam from our own eye so that we can be a tool used by God to help take the speck out of our brother's eye. That's what the church is meant to be. The church is meant to be a community, a family, where the truth, and yes, even the truth about ourselves, can cut deep into our hearts. It's meant to be a safe environment where the love that we have for one another will protect us as we, as we heal from those reductions or redactions of our cancers, our surgeries. But too often that's not what the church is. And I want to just ask you if you think that this, the following descriptions sound familiar to you. Please don't raise your hands. And by the way, I want to be very clear here, lest anyone think that, um, that I am trying to describe anyone in this church. I'm not. First of all, I'm too new here to know the problems. Secondly, secondly, I copied this verbatim, list by list, from a book that I'll cite here as we go through them. But it's, these are common problems, you understand. And so please don't think I'm pointing any fingers. See if this sounds familiar, though. The board member who, says, who never says, I was wrong or I'm sorry. Or how about the children's church leader, we don't even have one here, but you understand, who constantly criticizes others? What about the high-control small group leader who cannot tolerate different points of view? Or perhaps the middle-aged father of two who is secretly addicted to pornography? Or we could, we could put in, you could fill in the blank, other addictions in that as well. The 35-year-old husband busily serving in the church, unaware of his wife's loneliness at home. How about the worship leader who interprets any suggestion as a personal attack and a personal rejection? Do any of these things sound familiar to you? Not because there are specific people here, but because it's humanity, right? These are human problems, and, and too often in church we fail to be honest and open and confront our own problems as well as the others that we see among us. The Sunday school teacher struggling with feelings of bitterness and resentment toward the pastor, but afraid to say anything. Some of us will avoid confrontation at almost any cost. Some of us love confrontation. We're like bulls in china closets. 
Uh, we, we, both extremes are unhealthy. I'll tell you, one of my personal struggles emotionally um, has been the issue of confrontation. When I was about 22 years old, I, I temporarily became a boy's dean. And I hated confrontation. I would do anything possible to avoid confrontation. Do you know it as a boy's dean, as anyone who is responsible for mentoring and disciplining, you have to have some confrontation. And this is something that I have struggled with. My personality doesn't like it, but I have to be honest. And I remember going at times to tell a boy that he was being disciplined or confront him about something, and then going back to my home and just crying because I was so emotionally exhausted by the experience. And yet God calls me as a dean, today as a pastor. I have to be willing and able to lovingly deal with issues, right? That has to happen. And it's an area of my life that I've struggled with and I've been trying to grow in. Too often, though, what we do is we, we try to say, well, it's just the way I am. It's, not, it's my personality. And we shove it all into the closet. We try to take this being that God made us and we try to divide out again our, our different facets of our lives and we say, well, God, you can have, you can have influence over my spiritual life. You can maybe perhaps even have influence over my physical life, but my emotional life, the way I think and the way I relate and the way I handle conflict and the way I, I talk to people, those, those are my personality issues, just the way I am. Don't touch me there. Does that sound familiar? I realize that too often this has been my thinking. Too often this has been my experience. And I think that we have to be able to allow God to give us access to all of our hearts, all of our lives. I want to share you a story share with you a story of Bob Pierce. And I share this not as a criticism, but simply as a learning lesson. Um, many books have been written about the man. Um, Bob Pierce founded in 1950 an organization known as World Vision. World Vision is today the world's largest Christian relief and development agency. And Bob Pierce was a man of incredible, incredible energy and focus and drive. In the Korean War, Bob began helping children orphaned, and with unstoppable energy and vision, he dreamed the impossible and then made it happen. He was able to accomplish so much. He was the subject, even while alive, of numerous books and magazine articles, cover articles. His friends said of Bob, he is a man restless to win souls. I have never met a man with greater compassion. And again, he is a true Christian Samaritan who literally laid down his life for the needy little people of the world. Bob was often known to pray, let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. Can you say amen? Oh, what a man of vision and passion for God Bob was. This zeal drove him literally to the ends of the earth to meet spiritual and physical needs wherever he saw them. Bob was a man who accomplished much for God. But on the flip side of Bob's life, there were areas that I guess he felt maybe weren't as important. Perhaps he felt that all that he accomplished for God in some areas of his life compensated for the other areas of his life. And his focus on ministry, unfortunately, had disastrous consequences for his family. One of his family friends stated politely that Bob's wife, Lorraine, knew deprivation of a different kind than those to whom her husband was ministering. While on an overseas trip, one of his daughters phoned him and asked him to come home. She said, I need you. Come home. Bob, who was busy, uh, resisted even his wife's pleas, who was traveling with him, to, to go home. He refused and flew on to Vietnam. And when Mrs. Pierce arrived home, she found their daughter recovering from an attempt to take her life. His daughter said, I just needed to feel Daddy's arms around me, adding, I knew he wouldn't come. Unfortunately, the help that was given was too little and too late, and a couple years later, she was successful in her attempts. 
His marriage deteriorated. At one point, he didn't talk to his wife for years. And though God gave his family reconciliation on a night soon before his death, Bob spent years of his life alienated from everyone in his immediate family, doing great things for God, and yet neglecting, neglecting his own family. And you might ask, how can this happen? I think it happens because we've separated too much the various aspects of our lives. We've separated ourselves into spiritual beings, and we say, well, I do all the things. I, I go to church, and I pay my tithe, and I, I do all the things, the spiritual things. And we begin to see those as some sort of a, a counterbalance to our weaknesses. We need to take care of ourselves spiritually, yes, physically, yes, but emotionally as well, if we would be restored in God's image. For many Christians, if they get this far, it's the extent of the gospel's jurisdiction in their lives. Their emotional health, their relationships, their ways of relating are off limits to God. And so I want us to just think for a moment this morning about how that might affect even us here. We're not Bob Pierce's. Um, but I tell you, as I read his story, I had to find myself relating because there was a time in my life where I was so busy in ministry, so busy doing things for God, that I was neglecting my personal life, my personal walk with God. I was neglecting relationships. And I had to come face to face with some hard decisions in my life. The fact is, you can be a dynamic, gifted speaker for God in public and be an unloving spouse and parent at home. That's the reality. You can function as a church board member or pastor and be unteachable, insecure, and defensive. You can memorize entire books of the Bible and yet be unaware of depression and anger hurting other people, not realizing why you're doing the things you're doing, the lashing out the way you're lashing out, re re referencing people the way you reference them. You can fast and pray a half day a week for years and constantly be critical of others justifying it as spiritual discernment. This is reality, isn't it? This is the reality of the world we live in today. And as a church, we're here to help each other. God places us in a community where if we are willing to be open to the Holy Spirit's work, if we're willing to allow ourselves to open ourselves and, and be used by God, we ourselves will grow and we'll help others to grow as well. You can see shortcomings in others and rebuke them in a hurtful manner, believing it to be the straight testimony. On the other extreme, you can see shortcomings in others and not lovingly confront them because uh, you think that you're patient or tolerant when really all that you're afraid of is confrontation or you're afraid your own shortcomings will be pointed out next. I believe there's it's time for the church of God to give God room to work in our lives. You see, God made man in His image. And as, as we look at why perhaps there's a, a tendency to, to separate the emotional side, we go back to the idea of Plato. And Plato, the philosopher, he began to describe humanity as being part spiritus and part corpus, right? And uh, the body, he said, the corpus, he, he considered to be essentially bad and evil. The spirit was what was, what was good. Which, why, by the way, Plato's thinking and the whole Hellenization of the church is what, what affected the, uh, the medieval Christian idea of God that we are still recovering from. Really, the idea of the, the du dualism, Plato, Plato's dualism. But nonetheless, this idea, I think, began to affect the way we think of humanity as well, as if there are parts of us that are good and parts of us that are evil. There are parts of us that are noble and parts of us that aren't noble. And in fact, God made us as a complete whole, didn't he? With its weaknesses and with its, uh, its uh, frailties that sin brought, we are still a complete whole. And the, uh, I think that the, the emotional side, our feelings and our passions, began to be associated with the corpus, that which is bad and that which is evil. And it's not really, it's sort of kept under wraps. And so we feel guilty for the way we think or feel instead of exposing it to the light of God's truth and giving it to Him. We try to keep it under wraps and people begin developing 
split personalities, what they live in the church and in public, and what they are in private, because we've repressed the emotional side. We've repressed the side of our, our thoughts and feelings. The fact is that Jesus was a whole person. Amen? I want us to look now at a few Bible passages. So take out your Bibles. And I want to look at a couple Bible passages that will just tell us that Jesus was not someone who was unbalanced or just focusing on one area of his life. Jesus was someone who was a complete person. Let's look at Jesus as a person. First of all, in John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Turn with me there. This is the story. You're familiar with it. The story of Lazarus and the... um, graveside uh, as Jesus has come to visit him two days or three, know, several days, four days too late perhaps of being healed. And um, John chapter 11, and we'll begin reading in verse 33. John chapter 11, verse 33. The Bible says, Therefore when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in spirit and was troubled. You know, too often we have, let's just pause right there, too often we have, we have imagined Jesus to be almost a mechanical divine being who has no humanity. Are you with me? When, when Jesus was here on earth, his contemporaries had a hard time believing that he could actually be God. Right? After he left and the gospel stories were written, The problem we have is not believing that he's God in most cases. The problem is believing that he's human. And here we see the humanity of Jesus. Jesus was not a person who acted just stoically and and in a certain way uh, uh, um, uh, like a plastic individual. He had emotions and he expressed those emotions. You can read them on his face. And he says here in verse 34... Verse 33, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled, and he said, where have you laid him? They said, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? What we see about Jesus here is he was a real person, not afraid to show his emotions. Amen? It's not easy for us men sometimes to be willing to show our vulnerability in public. Jesus didn't care. Jesus was moved by compassion when he saw what was going on in this scene. We won't get into all the reasons. Let's look in Luke chapter 19. We're actually taking sort of a backwards glance through the Gospels. From John, we turn back a few pages to Luke. Luke chapter 19, and uh, we're going to look at verse 41. Let's see Jesus as a person in verse 41. Luke chapter 19 and verse 41. This is Jesus as He is making His triumphal entry into Jerusalem one week before His uh, well, beginning of His Passion Week, one week before His resurrection, Sunday before His crucifixion. And it says that as He drew near Jerusalem, verse 41, He saw the city and He did what? He wept over it. Jesus was a person who when He saw need, It moved him, and he wasn't afraid of expressing that emotion, expressing those feelings. He wasn't afraid of it being obvious and being seen. Let's look back in John, John chapter 2. John chapter 2 and uh, verses 3 and onward. I'm not going to read all those verses. Verses 13 and onward, I'm sorry. John chapter 2. Verse 13. It says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And He found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. What went through Jesus' mind as He saw what was going on in the temple on that day? It's pretty clear that this is one of those examples in Jesus' life where He would do what the Apostle said is, Be angry and sin not. Are you with me? This was not his own pride or selfish desires that were crossed and caused him to become angry. He became angry for the 
cause of God, for the glory and honor of God. And the Bible says he made a whip. When he had made a whip out of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. I want to tell you that Jesus, the Bible records, was not always not always meek and humble and a pushover, right? That would be more like Aaron when the people said to him, let's come and let's make a God, right? People think, oh, that's godly. There's a time for confrontation, isn't there? There's a time for confrontation done in the right way. And that's a whole other subject, a whole other study. But Jesus was not afraid of confronting when it needed to be confronted. There's a time for that. And he gives us that example. Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. A couple more passages we'll turn to quickly here this morning. Mark chapter 6, we see the humanity of Jesus, the, 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 the balance of Jesus as a whole being. I love this, this picture we get as we look at the Bible, at the, we look at the Gospels. Mark chapter 6, and beginning in verse 30. This is after, after there had been the uh, the, the 70 uh, sent out to minister. And um, actually, there's a 12 that had been sent out to minister at this point. And the 12 returned. And it says in verse 30, Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. Verse 31, He said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. I love this picture of Jesus. It's another one of the areas I struggle with. Balance. Jesus knew that even though the demands were great, he would best be able to meet them as a whole person. Are you with me? And that meant he and his disciples needed to take time to come apart and rest a while. Physically, emotionally, they needed this time with each other and with the Lord and with nature. Oh, what a balanced picture of Jesus the Bible presents to us. Our last one, Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26 and verse 36. Matthew 26 and verse 36. I love... Don't you just love the fact that God gave us the example of Jesus in His Word? Aren't you thankful for Jesus this morning? The prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, verse 36, Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And He took with Him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John. And He began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus here, he doesn't conform to the stereotype of Jesus that the church is too often formed in its, own, in its own thinking. Jesus here is not upbeat and faith-filled. Jesus here is human. He's struggling with the feelings in His heart. And He doesn't place a facade in front of His disciples. He's real in front of them. Amen? He gives us an example of being honest and transparent and asking Jesus, the creator of the world, the commander of the angelic host, the savior and redeemer, Jesus asks his disciples for help. That's called vulnerability and transparency, friends. And it's the model that he would have us in the church to follow. We can be real with each other, can't we? It can be messy at times, but that's what the church is here for. We can be real and honest and only as we take off 
those layers of facades, as we take off the, 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 the bondo and the bodywork that's been done to cover our scars and to excuse the way we relate and the way we feel about ourselves and others, can God begin to do a work of healing and transformation in our own hearts, in our own experience? I want to share this thought with you. Ignoring our emotions is turning our backs on reality. Listening to our emotions ushers us into reality. And reality is where we meet God. Emotions are the language of the soul. They are the cry that gives the heart a voice. However, we often turn a deaf ear through emotional denial, distortion, or dis disengagement. We strain out anything disturbing in order to gain tenuous control of our inner world. We are frightened and ashamed of what leaks into our consciousness. In neglecting our intense emotions, we are false to ourselves and lose a wonderful opportunity to know God. We forget that change comes through brutal honesty and vulnerability before God. This comes very close to my heart. I don't know about you. But these things, as I studied them, they really, really impacted me in a heavy way. Are we willing to ask ourselves the question, the why question? Not just how do I feel, but why do I feel the way I do about this certain family member or church member? Why? What is it about my background, the way I see myself? What is it? Why am I always in a hurry? Why am I always anxious? Why am I overly concerned about positive affirmation from others? The why question. Why do I avoid confrontation even when it is necessary? Why did something my spouse said bother me so much? The why question is important for us to ask. It's important for me to ask as I try to give God access to why I think and feel the way I do. Often, often we're like icebergs, aren't we? What we see on the outside is only the tip. And underneath the surface, there's a lot of whys. There's a lot of reasons why we feel and act and do and relate. And friends, that's okay. Right? We live in this kind of a world. But let's allow God to have access to the whole being so that He can help to change us. I put in your bulletins today a spiritual or emotional health inventory. And I would encourage you, we're not going to take the time to do it here today, but I would encourage you to take this home with you. And um, if you didn't get a copy, I can get one for you. But just ask yourselves those questions, fill out those numbers, and when you get to the bottom of the, when you get to the bottom of the uh, survey, you can chart your results. The numbers that you, the scores that you have in the different areas, you'll be able to place on the graph there at the, the bottom of the fourth page. And as you place them on a graph, you'll be able to see what area or what, what emotional growth area you need to work on, perhaps, in your lives, in my life. And um, I want to just read to you the description of an emotional adult here and see if you won't agree with me that this is what we want to become. This is what we want to allow God to bring us to. An emotional adult, I can respect and love others without having to change them or becoming critical and judgmental. I don't expect anyone to be perfect in meeting my relational needs whether it be my spouse, parents, friend, boss, or pastor. I love and appreciate people for how they are as whole individuals, the good and the bad, and not for what they can give me or how they behave. I take responsibility for my own thoughts, feelings, goals, and actions. When under stress, I don't fall into a victim mentality or a blame game. I can state my own beliefs and values to those who disagree with me without becoming adversarial. I am able to accurately self-assess my limits, strengths, and weaknesses, and freely discuss them with others. Deeply in tune with my own emotions and feelings, I can move into the emotional worlds of others, meeting them at the place of their feelings, needs, and concerns. I am deeply convinced that I am absolutely loved by Christ, that I have nothing to prove. Can you imagine 
if we had a community of believers, all of us functioning as emotional adults, it's our goal. It's what we want to strive for, and I believe it's why God's placed us in the church. I believe that's why God has given us each other, and I'm so thankful. I'm thankful for, for that. I'm thankful that we can grow together. You know, um, the gospel says that I am more sinful and flawed than I ever dared to believe. But it also says, praise God, it also says, I am more accepted and loved than I'd ever dared to hope. Is that good news? It's good news. And you know, as we, as we think of the, the blessing of this gospel... I think of, a, of an allegory. I've never read C.S. Lewis's books, but there's an allegory I came across in another source that really touched me as I thought its applicability to today's message was so, so clear. The story is in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and uh, there was a young boy named Eustace. Eustace left being a simple, innocent boy to become a stubborn, selfish, ugly dragon as a result of his choices to become uh, unbelieving and selfish and stubborn. Now, after this boy who became a dragon because of his spiritual choices became this dragon, he wants to go back again to being an innocent, simple boy. And that's easier said than done, isn't it? Isn't it? So when he wants to go back he finds that he can't become the little boy he used to be by himself. And that's where the great lion Aslan, representing Jesus, appears to him and leads him. The lion leads him to a beautiful well, and he invites him to bathe. But since he is a dragon, he can't fit into the well. And so he remembers, Eustace remembers that He's a, he's, a, he's a reptile, I guess, as a dragon. He can shed his skin the way a, skin would, a, a snake would shed its skin. And so he begins to undress and cast off his layer like a snake would. He takes off a layer by himself and dropping it to the ground, he feels better. And he decides he would try to get into the well, but he finds he's still, he's still a dragon. He still can't get into the well. He realizes there's another yet harder and rougher and more scaly layer still on him. And frustrated, in pain and longing to get into that beautiful bath, Eustace asks himself the question, how many skins do I have to take off? After three layers, he gives up, realizing he can't do it. And that's when Aslan the lion says to him, you will have to let me undress you. And this is what Eustace replied. I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And it, there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, smooth and soft. He caught hold of me and threw me into the water, it smarted like anything for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon I started swimming and splashing and found that all the pain I had was gone. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me with his paws in these new clothes I'm wearing. I don't know about you, friends, but I think that's a pretty accurate allegory. We try to shed a few of our own layers, but what we really need is to give Jesus permission. To give permission, permission to touch the areas of our lives we haven't been willing to confront. 
so that we can be the people, the men and women, the boys and girls God wants us to be, so that we can be the church that God wants us to be as well. I want to take you back to this passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I can't leave you without pointing you to the words that immediately follow, because it's my favorite part. It's my favorite part of the whole message this morning. Verse 24 says, He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, today, we just want to pray that we would be able to experience this promise that we might be sanctified our whole spirit, soul, and body completely by the one who is faithful. Lord, thank you for being willing. Thank you for being so patient with us. Help us, I pray, to give you access to every area of our lives. Lord, it's easy. It's easy for us to look around and see areas in other people's lives they need to give you access to. But Lord, we need your Spirit to speak to our hearts. Because only as we give you that access will you make us instruments to help one another towards the kingdom. Lord, make this a community of faith wherein we can grow spiritually, physically, emotionally to become restored into your image. This is our prayer and our desire. In Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.